Welcome back, creeps. <laughs> Say hello. Hey. <laughs> so this week we are recording on video, as you can see here. Um, not just audio. So I'm going to have to remember to look at the camera, and Dulce is going to have to remember to react <laughs> um, audibly as well as visually. Yeah. My reaction is usually visual. Yeah, even when there's no camera on. She's just gone. <gasps> so... We've been gone for like almost a month, as I'm sure if you haven't noticed, it's okay, I forgive you, but I'm sure you have been like, hey, where's my weekly creep? Big shout out to Emmett, actually, my cousin, who was a big fan of the show. Um, That's really nice. We heard about that. So we actually went home to surprise my mom for her birthday. So we had to take a week off for that. And uh, it was mental. Yeah, it was. We fit a lot of stuff in five days. Yeah, um, we did put a video on our own YouTube page, and I think you can actually get to the video through the Weekly Creep page as well. It's just Adam and Dulce. Yeah, our own page, just Adam and Dulce. And it's just like family movies and stuff like that. Um, for the grandparents. Pretty much. And uh, for when I start to lose my memory and I can go back and watch <laughs> over it. There's lots of cute videos of um, Sophia, my niece, uh, and then my sister pretty much took over most of the video. And it was pretty funny, though, I'm not going to lie. Since not, be, well, I have been doing weekly creep stuff. I've been like doing it all in the background, but as well at work, my job is like super mundane. Okay. Like ridiculously boring, but we like, we'll set up an iPad or whatever. And we'll sit there. Like we'll have a documentary or something on in the background. Not all the time, but just sometimes. So I watched recently the hatchet wielding hitchhiker. Right, Kai? Dude, it was... Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. You were telling me. Yeah. So, MASH. It was... A f like, first of all, I actually... As a true crime podcaster, I you guess. Are. Yeah. I mean, you've been, um, you've been doing it for two and a half years, Adam. I think it's fair to call yourself that. <laughs> but as somebody who, like, does stuff in the realm of true crime, I hate true crime documentaries and how trashy they are. This one had me on like the edge of my seat the whole time. I was like, what? And all because I actually remember the dude going viral in that video. Oh, okay. Right? So he was like this hippie guy anyway. His name wasn't actually Kai. I can't even remember what his, his whole name was. But if anybody has watched it, let me know in the comments. I'd love to actually maybe do a little update on it or something. Maybe like a mini weekly creep in the future. Uh, we also watched, oh, that one's on Netflix. And then we watched um, There's Something Wrong with Aunt Diane, which I think was on HBO Max. It was horrific. Like, it was really, really bad. This, I think Stephen King actually wrote a short story about it. Hmm. Um, but this lady was driving home. They had been camping with, and she had all her kids in the back of the car. And then next thing they knew, she was like driving the wrong way on the freeway. And she killed all of the kids and herself. Well, one of the kid uh, kids survived, but the family were in complete denial. The toxicology reports came back that there was alcohol in their system and marijuana. Whoa. But the dad and sister-in-law were like, she would never, she would never do that. And then the families of the other people that she killed, because she drove into somebody, they were like, look, we could forgive the fact, like, it's an awful thing that happened. We've lost family members and stuff, but... um. Like, we could forgive them if they just accepted the fact that she was drunk. Yeah. And the, the family just won't accept it. 
basically. They're, they're, I think I might have heard that. Yeah, it was like, honestly, it was horrific. And also, like, they were really detailed, mm. like showed like crime scene photos and stuff. So maybe don't watch that if you're sensitive to that kind of stuff. Um, and then I also watched a documentary about Chiracha. Nice. On Peacock, yeah. Did you find out why there's a shortage? No, actually. Um, but I'm pretty sure there's a shortage of Sriracha because the crop failed. And the chili peppers, I think they actually just use jalapenos. Oh, okay. Yeah. Um, but anyway, that was a lovely half an hour. Uh, kind of heartwarming and stuff. But yeah. Other than that, how are you doing? Pretty good. Not that much. Streaming every morning? Um. Yeah, I just... I've been doing like a lot of different stuff. Like I've been trying um like streaming my morning makeup routines um because i like to go all out well not like full face but like i i do take about 10 15 minutes to do my makeup it's like my me time at half five in the morning by the way yeah so i enjoy it it's my favorite time of the morning um and then i've just been blogging really Mm -hmm. yeah thank you for everybody who bought us um books off of our wish list so when we got home from ireland we actually did like a live so you can watch it it's on our instagram um where we like oh we didn't actually unbox them because i didn't want people to know what kind of topics are going to be coming up in the smart in the new year yeah um but we did unbox this this is the book that Haley gave us and then this ba 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 was sent to us from our uh, listener, Caitlin, up in Canada. And Haley is also up in Canada. Thank you to my lovely assistant here. So, yeah, we did that. But, yeah, anyway, so this week's episode is technically sponsored by uh, Claudia for sending us the book that was on there. So, thank Claudia you very much, Claudia. Claudia and Elias. Claudia and, yeah, is it Elias or Elias? I think it's El- Elias. Okay. Anyway, they're deadly. They also have matching weekly creep shirts, mom and really uh, mom and son weekly creep shirts. So yeah, thank you very much, Claudia, and everybody who pitched in and sent us lovely books. As we go through them, um, I'll give you a shout out to say thank you to such and such for buying X, Y, or Z. Um, but yeah, other than that, how's your magic mind feeling? Uh, pretty good. I'm all out though. Oh shit! <laughs> that explains a lot, actually. <laughs> We've been going through it here at the. <laughs> yeah, you need um, to re up your your dose. Yeah, I think it. Um, I think it probably would have helped had I had it when we came back because, like, I was able to sleep like on the plane and mm-hmm. like to and from, and I usually can't because of the pressure in the ear. So I started u- using these ear planes in my ear to like relieve the pressure and it did help but like I would still get like this headache and like my body really goes through it yeah she, like, you're, you're I start, just a bad flyer yeah like I just walk away from flights feeling like and smelling like garbage so um, that probably would have helped me adjust <laughs> to like real world when we came back but yeah so you had been sleeping properly like you had really been reaping the benefits of it until we took our week off and until we took our week off, I could I don't I couldn't afford to bring it because we were only ha- like we only allowed were allowed carry on. Yeah, we did it like this is a super budget friendly 
Yeah. Right? It was very like when we booked the tickets, it was very, let's look at tickets. And we immediately booked them. So it was like on the cuff. So we didn't even like look at the details when it came to like, what are we allowed to bring? Because I feel like I probably wouldn't have had such a rough to and from had I had that with me. Yeah, yeah. So because you couldn't bring carry on, we probably should have ordered it and had it ready sitting and waiting when we got there. Yeah. Could've. But then that would have given away the surprise. <laughs> oh, yeah, that would have. <laughs> um, <laughs> but yeah, so it's like sleep was your biggest thing. Though, sleep is my biggest thing. Like, I cannot stress the importance of sleep in, like, to me. And the funny thing is, like, I can, like, the difference that one hour can make for me. Yeah. And also the quality of sleep is huge for me. My thing with uh, Magic Mind is the ingredients. I love reading through that. So it would have been the ashwagandha, probably? Probably. Or the cordyceps mushrooms. That's exactly possibly. what it was. The mushrooms. That was helping to say sleep. But you were also taking them like to get to the gym. Like you were using them on your everyday. Oh, right. Um, that's true. I completely forgot about that. And I've noticed that I started supplementing what I would normally when I would normally drink Magic Mind, I started supplementing it with like something else. Mm. And it's just like not the same. It's like it's, sugary energy drinks. And it's stuff. not the same. And it's not sugary energy drinks. It's just I like having the small quantity because right. I easily get full. And the reason why I like drinking it in the afternoon these days is not just to give me like a boost. Um, but I have started going back to the gym consistently now. Yeah. So it's not just to get me through the workday. It's to get me through the workday. And to give me motivation to go to the gym. Yeah, that's fair <laughs> enough. And then you're not feeling like extra full when you get to the gym. Full that's like the most important thing. I fucking hate going to the gym feeling full. And like, uh, you know, like the big energy drinks, you know, like, I guess they're not big, but the normal size, yeah. you know, energy drinks, I can't drink that shit, man. I just wish they would like come out with like smaller sizes and shit. But yeah, I'm like, I can't do those. Those are too much. So we've obviously learned our lesson on not having the subscription waiting here for when you get by. Yeah. So, okay. So that's why another reason that's, I didn't even think about that to be fair, but that's another reason why, like when you get the subscription, you also save a ton of money. So if you go to www.magicmind.co and use our code weekly creep, it's all capitals here, but I don't think you have, I don't think that makes a difference. Uh, you'll save 56% on your subscription. So another bonus for getting the subscription is you save over half the money um but yeah so www.magicmind.co forward slash weekly creep and then use our discount code weekly creep thank you magic mind so can we talk about my attire now um is the story going to be about nicholas cage do you think i could get away with nicholas cage I mean, I feel like that's his style, right? Is it? I think so. I don't know. I, I'm not going to lie. That actually, I'm really feeling this hat. This is Dulce's hat, by the way. The cool uh, pentagrams there. Flash, flash. Maybe uh, John Wick. John Wick. Is it about John Wick? It is, actually. This is the real story of John Wick and how he wicked his way into... I don't, I've never seen that movie. I don't know what the fuck you're referencing. This week's episode is obviously Men in Black. That's why I look so um, slick and so cool. Mm. This is the book that Claudia gave us. Let me block out some faces there. Block your face, lady. Yeah. 
Casebook. Casebook on the Men in Black by Jim Keith. This had actually been on my... You can unblock it. <laughs> this had actually been on my uh, wish list before we made the actual Amazon wish list for a long time. So I was really looking forward to getting my hands on that. It's only one of the sources for this series, again, because I have come to the realization that, yes, I, I really and truly do have ADHD. And I leaned into it this week. Okay. A little bit. I just kind of let it, like take me where it wanted me to go. Mm. So the other sources for this week's episode include bridgeportlibrary.org, the case book on The Men in Black by Jim Keith, The Real Men in Black by Nick Redfern, an episode of Coast to Coast where Art Bell interviewed Nick Redfern and also another episode where he interviewed Jim Keith. Um, there was another interview with Nick Redfern on the From the Shadows podcast. I don't actually know those guys. I meant to try and reach out and uh, I will after this. But it was pretty cool to hear hear the guy talk. Um, the Mothman Prophecies by John Keel. And I'm sure some other sources that I will add along the way, like for, you know, silly bits here and there. Um, but yeah, once again, thank you for making this possible, Claudia. And I'm going to take off this now because I'm actually... <laughs> Is it bothering you? I'm sweating. Oh. Whew. And their glasses are giving me a headache, I think. Thank you. I actually like the hat, though. I know. So this subject for me was a little bit difficult to kind of crack into, and I'm not really sure why. Um, I think a lot of the stories are very superficial superficial, and seem quite, like, malleable in the sense that, like, the narrative is very much controlled by the teller, you know? Um, I think one of the reasons why I've tried to stay clear of these topics for so long is because as much as I love them, camera that's over here and rocking all over the place... Oh, is it me? I'm rocking. You are rocking. Okay. It. it doesn't do it on its own. Stupid camera. So I think one of the reasons why I've tried to stay clear of these topics for so long too is because as much as I love them and get like genuinely freaked out by them, um, they're just so easily dismissed. Like, and a lot of them for good reason, because like a lot of the set in stone example cases that are referred to time and time again by different ufologists and those types. Like, they're not even from a direct source. Like, the official accounts are often like, so I got this from a guy that I know who worked in the Pentagon. So it's all hearsay? A lot of it, a lot of it is hearsay, oh, yeah. okay. Um, they're usually cases that were investigated at one time by some of, the, like, the bigger names, say John Keel or uh, Gray Barker, like, names that are going to keep coming up over and over as we do this. And as we get into, like, stranger things as well in the future. But they're just taken for gospel because they picked up this one time and it's like, okay, like we have to believe him. Like he's our Lord and Savior, basically. And this is very much a case of myself being very cliche and saying I want to believe. And I, I really, really do. I've just become a lot more cynical since doing a lot of the deeper dive things in general. Like, But... The first story that anyone really hears about when it comes to the men in black is that of Albert Bender. Have you heard this story? So it might like, you might remember it as I get through it. What we will be getting into that in a little while is not the story that I'm going to be starting with. The story that I'm going to start with is a story that is a perfect example of like a real life game of telephone. Okay. Okay. So the Mothman Prophecies was a book 
that I had wanted to read for like the longest time. But it was nothing like what I had expected. I thought I was going to pick this up and it was going to be like wall to wall. The Mothman was seen here and then he did this and this is what he, his favorite food was. It was nothing really like that. It like it definitely had all the accounts of like Mothman sightings, obviously, and like all of the Point Pleasant goings on from nineteen sixty seven or thereabouts. But it actually had a lot more to it than just that. Aside from John Keel's notorious insulting descriptions of every single woman that he had ever had any sort of interaction with, he is he's a legend of the ufology or high strangeness scene. But he was a piece of shit. I'm pretty sure he died single because it would be like, and so I went down to Mary on 5th Street and 24th and she answered the door very plain looking in her modest white dress. I can see how she could have been attractive to someone at some time. And there's like nothing to do. Like, you know what I mean? But I'm pretty sure I've mentioned this story before, but he starts the book with an extremely interesting account titled Beelzebub visits West Virginia. And that's where we're going to start today. I keep forgetting to look at the camera. I keep looking at you. I know. Yeah. <laughs> this is all like 1950s and 1960s stuff. So, Fingers of lightning tore holes in the black skies as an angry cloudburst drenched the surrealistic landscape. It was 3 a.m. on a cold, wet morning in late November 1967. And the little houses scattered along the dirt road winding through the hills of West Virginia were all dark. Some seemed, un some seemed unoccupied and in the final stages of decay. Others were unpainted, neglected, forlorn. The whole setting was like the opening scene of a grade B horror film from the 1930s. I forgot my accent there. 1930s. <laughs> along the road there came a stranger in a land where strangers were rare and suspect. He walked up to the door of a crumbling farmhouse and hammered. After a long moment, a light blinked on somewhere in the house and a young woman appeared, drawing a cheap, mail-order bathroom. <laughs> this is Durant. Because <laughs> he is... The, he's Oh, he's the worst. He's like. a bathroom connoisseur from the Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um... A young woman appeared drawing a cheap, mail-order bathrobe tightly about her. She opened, the, she opened the door a crack and her sleep-swollen face winced in fear as she stared at the apparition on her doorstep. He was over six feet tall and dressed entirely in black. He wore a black suit, black tie, black hat and black overcoat. With, an, with impractical black dress shoes covered with mud, his face, barely visible in the darkness, sported a neatly trimmed mustache and goatee. The flashes of lightning behind him added an eerie effect. May I use your footnote? <laughs> no, watch you be like, may I use your phone? <laughs> Excuse me, can I use your phone? <laughs> Hold on, this hasn't been recording. What? This entire time. Are you serious? Yeah. So excuses for the uh, terrible audio this week. The more we add in, the more shit goes wrong, I feel like. <laughs> yeah. May I use your phone? <laughs> <laughs> May I use your phone? He asked in a deep baritone. Yeah, that's what oh, I didn't okay. read that either. Okay. <laughs> May I use your phone? He Let me asked. Let the deep voice. May I use your phone? <laughs> he asked in a deep baritone, his voice lacking the familiar West Virginia accent. The girl gulped silently and backed away. 
my husband. She mumbled. <laughs> Talk to my husband. I like your impression of the woman better. <laughs> she closed the door quickly and backed away into the darkness. Minutes passed. Then she returned, accompanied by a rugged young man hastily buckling his trousers in place. He, too, turned pale at the sight of the stranger. We ain't got no phone here. I don't know what West Virginia sounds like, actually. <laughs> I guess that's it. Is it? Like, yeah, back I mean, it's hills? southern. We yeah. ain't got no phone here. All right, Forrest. All right. He grunted through the crack in the door just before he slammed it. The couple retreated, murmuring to themselves, and the tall stranger faded into the night. <laughs> in the days that followed, the young couple told their friends about the apparition. Obviously, they concluded... He had been a fearful omen of some sort. Perhaps he had been the devil himself. Three weeks later, these two people were dead, among the victims of the worst tragedy ever to strike that section of West Virginia. They were driving across the Silver Bridge which spanned the Ohio River when it suddenly collapsed. Their friends remembered. They Pe remembered. Pepperidge Farm remembered. <laughs> Their friends remembered. They remembered the story of the bearded stranger in the night. It had, indeed, been a sinister omen. One that confirmed their religious beliefs and superstitions. So a new legend was born. Beelzebub had visited West Virginia on the eve of a terrible tragedy. And that's our first Man in Black story. Oh, Today. Okay. We'll be back. I mean, we're going to stay here. We'll be back to that story later. We'll be back to West Virginia later, okay? Okay, okay, okay. They only have one camera. <laughs> <laughs> Do you remember reading about the Bermuda Triangle when you were a kid? Yeah. Uh, planes would go missing in there. Um, Jim Jim and Pam got lost in there when Michael That's called him for, for a second there. Um, that, isn't that where Amelia Earnhardt was supposed to like disappear? Yeah, That's a, I actually like don't that. know. But um, boats disappear there. Like everything, right? Like... I was genuinely afraid of the Bermuda Triangle when I was a kid. Really? Yeah, and I, I saw, like, a meme of this recently. Mm -hmm. And I, like, it hit me really fucking hard. I was like, that is directed at me. What? But, I don't know, it was just definitely one of those irrational things, like, oh. what if we got lost on our way to Super Value and end up in the Bermuda Triangle, and then me <laughs> and my mom are just never seen again, you know what I mean? At least you'd be with your mom. Yeah, that's true. Although, she'd be... Sorry, mom, I, you're probably listening... You'd be useless in a situation <laughs> like that. She'd be sniveling in the corner and I'd be like, where the fuck are we? But I was also convinced that the world was going to end on December 31st, 1999. Nothing to do with Y2K. I just remember being very small in like 1996 and wondering why like no one else was freaking the fuck out about it. All dying in three and a half years. I literally didn't even know about Y2K. I remember asking my mom. I was sleeping in her bed and she was like in getting ready or something like that. And I was like, mom, are we starting a new century? And like after 1999, she was like, yeah, like I'm sick of listening to my bollocks. And uh, I was like, oh, OK. I just thought that that meant that we were all like dead. <laughs> and then like everybody just accepted it. Then. Yeah, because I, I guess I figured like that's what happened to the Romans or something. Yeah. You know, anyway. Okay. So I read about the Bermuda Triangle in a book that I got from my uncle. I might have just annoyed him about it so much that he just gave it to me. But anyway, it was called The Mysteries of the Unexplained. And it basically ruined my life. <laughs> this is a cover of it. Okay. Here. I'm going to put it in the video. Who's it? John gave this to you. 
Yeah, I'm pretty sure Johnny had it just in his room. And I was like, oh, my God, it looks like I have to get my hands on this book. And I remember like reading it in my granny's back garden. And eventually it led to me sleeping on the floor in my parents' room because I was so afraid that a banshee was going to get me. <laughs> That's funny. Yeah. So this, this episode has a lot to do with my childhood, apparently. But anyway, one of the stories that I think was in this book was about the mysterious disappearance of Flight 19. And this information that I got is from history.com. I didn't do like a deep dive on this. I might come back to it in the future. But at 2.10 on December 5th, 1945, five planes took off from a Fort Lauderdale Naval Air Station on a routine training exercise. It was a three-hour exercise known as Navigation Problem Number 1. Each plane had three well-experienced Marines and Naval men, except for one plane that only had two. The flight's leader was Lieutenant Charles C. Taylor, an experienced pilot and veteran of several combat missions in World War II's Pacific Theater. Why was this? <laughs> Why was this group of planes called Flight 19? I don't know. Because 18 other groups of planes performing the exact same exercise had gone out that day successfully and returned. Of course. So the flight path was triangular meaning that the planes would fly east to one location, then turn left, head north, and once they reached the last checkpoint, they would take another left and head southwest, southwest back to base. After the first checkpoint, however, something went wrong. I've been watching a lot of documentaries, remember, so that's all I can see in my head is everything. Went wrong. Something went wrong. Lieutenant Taylor was heard on the radio claiming that both of his compasses had malfunctioned and he was convinced that they had gone the wrong way. Things only got worse from here as the weather condi- uh, as the weather conditions took a turn, bringing rain, wind, and heavy cloud cover. Taylor sounded panicky over the radio, but he was convinced that they were somewhere over the Florida Keys, and he insisted that they head northeast to get back to Fort Lauderdale. The other pilots were heard arguing with him over the radio, insisting that they go west. It was a simple rule that all pilots were told, apparently, if you were got lost over the Atlantic, head west towards the setting sun, and you'll get back over land eventually. So the sun is usually the easiest thing to guide you back home, and America is west if you're in the Atlantic. Okay. Okay. Eventually, it appeared that they did turn west, but sometime around 6 p.m., they changed course again because Taylor, who was actually only 27, even though he was a well-experienced veteran, he was only 27. He became convinced that they were actually in the Gulf of Mexico and were heading all the way towards Mexico, like mainland, or back to Galveston or somewhere like Texas, very south. As the lads flew further away from land, their radio transmissions became weaker and weaker, and eventually, Lieutenant Taylor was heard saying, All planes close up tight. We'll have to ditch unless landfall. When the first plane drops below 10 gallons, we'll all go down together. Very serious stuff, like... So, it seems like a tragic, extremely tragic, but very straightforward story. They got lost, and that was it. And they ran out of fuel, and that was it. Yeah. But then you find out that the rescue plane that was sent out to look for them also disappeared without a trace. Some say only 10 minutes after it took off. Then you find out that more of the radio conversation had been documented, and it told of one of the pilots saying, We can't find West. Everything is wrong. We can't be sure of any direction. Everything looks strange. Even the ocean. The fuck? 
It was claimed that Lieutenant Taylor had been heard saying, We are entering white water. Nothing seems right. We don't know where we are. The water is green. No, white. And supposedly the final radio transmission was, It looks like we are entering white water. We're completely lost. So I did not, and I won't verify any of the sources of this material. I got it from history.com, burnnews.com, and nasflmuseum.com, which I think was something to do with some flying association in Florida. Like I said, I might do a deep dive in the future about like the whole Bermuda Triangle, all the different stories. But the fact is that back in the day, there were all sorts of these like adventure magazines, men's magazines, and of course, men's adventure magazines. And the people writing these articles for these journals weren't out there checking every single fact. Okay, they, this was like extreme tabloid stuff. Um, what was the expression for it? Like grey journalism or something? Gotcha German journalism. Something like that, yeah. And it was just, they wouldn't let a fact get in the way of a good story, basically. But this tragic event did spur on the start of the, quote, Deadly Bermuda Triangle, which is how it was officially coined as a phrase by one of these magazines. And if we were out there reading about this stuff in the 90s and being completely mind blown, can you imagine just how terrifyingly fascinating it must have been back in the 40s and 50s, right? Like as it was going on, like your brother was going off to the Air Force to fight and wherever. And then you're hearing about this other more mysterious thing that you like, you can kill a, a Nazi or whoever war they were fighting, but you can't kill the Bermuda Triangle. I'm surprised they didn't try to like shoot missiles at it and when i say they i mean america yeah well you want to know what my boss suggested the other day what so my co-worker is uh going on vacation this week and uh to mexico and so my boss said you know i just don't understand why america doesn't just take mexico as in full-on go over there and invade mexico so we our vacations can be easier i guess anyway Albert Bender of Bridgeport, Connecticut was there, man. He was freaking in it, dude. He was L-I-V-I-N-G living it, man. I was loving writing this. <laughs> Bender was a certified horror freak. And I really believe he would have been... Like, we could have been best friends. All right, in, a, in another time. He was 23 in 1945, as all of this Bermuda business was going down. And the term Bermuda Triangle, like I said, hadn't even been coined at that point. The whole mystery was still in its infancy. He eventually would go on to read all of the early paranormal investigators' works with, like, Charles Fort being his main source, supposedly. Now, if you've ever heard of the magazine Fortean Times, this is something that's referenced constantly when you're researching topics like this. Or just even the term Fortean actually comes from Charles Fort. Like... This word was created from this man's research and in a way to like honor him, basically. Um, and Fortean literally means in the dictionary of relating to or denoting paranormal phenomena. How fucking cool is that for Charles Ford? Like? Now, most accounts say Bender lived with just his stepdad in the top floor of a three story house that had been converted into apartments. But some say his mother, Ellen, lived in the house, too. I don't know. Regardless... He lived in his own room in the attic. And I don't think he was a total recluse, but he definitely wasn't like a social butterfly by any means. He spent the majority of his time locked up in his attic room, reading anything and everything paranormal related and scanning the skies for anything strange with his telescope. 
He was a huge horror fan in general and decorated his attic room like to reflect his true personality. He painted, quote, the faces of grotesque, nightmarish creatures on the walls. He had fake skulls, shrunken heads, fake bats, and God knows what else. Whenever he had a visitor over to see Bender's Chamber of Horrors, as he called it, he would play sound effects like thunder, sobbing, and hissing noises on his record player. Like, I think this just sounds like a fucking, the coolest line. And it definitely, he wasn't having any hot dates over. You know what I mean? (laughs) It said that he had toyed with the idea of taking over the entire attic and charging people to come see the haunted house. I would pay, even today, I would pay to go and see that. The locals, though, naturally thought he was a bit of a character, as was the nice phrase back in the day. Um, but some thought he was an absolute menace to their peaceful Connecticut lifestyle. That being said, he apparently showed very obvious symptoms of obsessive compulsive disorder, OCD, needing everything in his chamber of horrors to be exactly where they were supposed to be and becoming extremely irritated if he thought something was even slightly out of place. And apparently he could just walk in and fucking know, you know? Hmm. According to Nick Redfern, He was also quite the hypochondriac from a young age. He was convinced that he would develop some sort of terminal cancer, which, I mean, that's kind of fair, like, to assume. But back in the 40s, I guess that was less the case. Yeah. I would assume less hormones and all that kind of crap. But it seemed like it wasn't just a, a rational fear. Like, obviously, we're all afraid of that happening to us. But this was like, he was convinced it was happening right there and then kind of thing. Yeah. Most strange of all, though, I think, anyway... He worked as chief timekeeper at Acme Shear Company, the world's largest manufacturer of scissors. Yeah, so strange. And in his attic, he kept 20 clocks, right? Can you imagine? Can you imagine just the noise of 20 mechanical clocks going on in one room? That's why. I don't know, but like, I literally, I sleep with noise cancelling headphones now. Honestly, like, that doesn't seem like such a bad 20. thing. Okay, but what if I told you that these clocks also chimed every 15 minutes? Okay, well then, yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like their songs. Yeah. That would Every be an- 15 minutes, every half an hour. But that's how he liked it, hour. though. That's how he liked it, yeah. Okay. He, like, collected these things. Now, I think, in my professional opinion, as a qualified electrician, that this shows a hoarding problem as well as uh, symptoms yeah, yeah. of, or which is a symptom of OCD. Of OCD. Oh yeah, fair, yeah, fair. Yeah. yeah. So aside but, from all that. Yeah. At least they're not like disrupting the neighbors like the rooster we have in the neighborhood. That's true. If you guys hear, I, I'm actually a fan of the rooster, but I can understand why you would hate the rooster. So like he doesn't just crow during the morning. He crows all day and i googled it and apparently they don't just crow in the morning like just to be like hey y'all sun's yeah. out they'll be like he'll crow <laughs> the fucking sun is out! <laughs> 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 but like they crow when they feel like they or their flock are in danger oh well that makes perfect sense because he's in a neighborhood surrounded by barking dogs all the time like they they are the ones that alert everyone everyone that makes yeah. sense 
Anyway, I'm a fan of the rooster. Dulce's dad is not a fan of the rooster. No, and it's so funny because he like romanticized living in a farm with lots yeah. of animals. <laughs> but it's like, he's like, yeah, chickens and roosters, the very basics. Like, it's like step one of farm life. Yeah. You acquire these feathered creatures and he's already like over it. And it's like. I actually also want chickens and I'm not over it. I would, I would have a rooster as well. But you're right. Albert Bender, to get back to it, was not disrupting his neighbors, as far as we know, with his, like, sound effects or his chamber of horrors or anything like that. Yeah. But aside from all that, like, just think of how mad that must all have been, like, with 20, ch- 20 clocks all chiming at the same time throughout the night. Yeah. And I mean, like, while you're sleeping and all. Anyway, the Bender family were not unfamiliar with tales of the paranormal either. A cousin had claimed to have seen a woman in black in their bedroom as a child and, quote, another relative in North Pennsylvania had died of a brain hemorrhage that certain members of the family came to believe was due to the actions of a supernatural entity that haunted the shadowy corners of a nearby cemetery. That's a lot of information. It's a lot. So this guy died, completely natural causes, and the family for some reason thought that the ghost did it. Really? The ghost in a nearby cemetery. Okay. Sure. I love a good ghost story. I just, I would like to see the evidence and why it caught Yeah, it, you yeah. Know I mean? It's not just like, oh, it was. Yeah. And in the way it's written, it kind of makes them out to be like, poor police those work. guys will believe anything, you know? It's almost like poor police work. Yeah, a little bit. Um, In December of 1950, Bender got to work on starting up a worldwide network of UFO investigators, the IFSB or the International Flying Saucer Bureau. And I think it was officially established in April of 1952. Bender was the president and his timekeeping buddy from the scissor factory was the vice vice president. The group would publish a quarterly newsletter called Space Review, which would share UFO sightings, experiences, possible theories and updates. People all over the world were writing to the IFSB headquarters with their experiences and opinions. And within just four months, the IFSB had around 600 members. Now, that's, like, really impressive, I think. And with representatives in Britain and Australia. Now, by today's standards, these numbers are pretty small. Not much smaller than weekly creep numbers, honestly. Like Yeah, but that's, like, before internet and That's shit. what I'm saying, yeah. Yeah, like, that's really impressive. Back then, that's phenomenal. Especially, in like, like overseas? With, yeah. That's pretty like, cool. It was a legitimate worldwide so organization. he's, like, old-timey viral. Yeah, yeah, pretty much. And, like, instantly as well. Then something strange began to happen. To Mr. Bender. On the night of July 30th, 1952, Albert was home alone when the phone rang. He answered and was met with silence on the other end. But he knew that there was someone there. Well, because someone called. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) But it wasn't like they just called and there was like a deadline. It was like, you can hear when there's somebody on the other line. Oh, I see, I I see, yeah. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> and John Keel actually says, this is not a quote, but it's like, when it comes to mysterious phone calls, you can tell the difference between a perverted masturbator and a UFO like encounter, basically. Can you now? <laughs> yeah. So <laughs> I guess he experience. had a lot of both. Yeah. <laughs> Suddenly, Bender's head started throbbing severely and he felt the room begin to spin. He hung up and went straight to bed, hoping for the dizzy spell to pass. A few days later, he was walking home from the cinema when he began to get the overwhelming feeling of being followed. 
He made it back to the house with no issues and his stepdad was already asleep, so he quietly made his way to the attic, only to find an eerie glow emanating from the gap below the door to his room. He threw open the door and was hit with the thick smell of burning sulphur. Then he saw where the light was coming from, a bright, shimmering object hovering in the middle of the room. His eyes suddenly felt extremely irritated and he instinctively turned on the light. As soon as the lights came on, the mysterious thing in the room disappeared into thin air. It disappeared to be where it had been. <laughs> what a dickhead. I leave these notes to myself like as I'm writing and I'm like, hey, hey. <laughs> <laughs> it completely throws me off. Like. It disappeared to be where it had been. There was also evidence that someone or something had gone through his flying saucer material, which he was receiving by the sack load at this point. Sack. Yes. Bender tried to forget about the whole experience and just get on with his day-to-day business, which Nick Redfern was quick enough to poke fun at by pointing out that this included, quote, methodically affixing large plastic spiders to the ceiling of the attic, which... Oh, burn! With which to terrify visiting friends. (laughs) An entirely normal action for a 30-something-year-old. I mean... Roasted. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) He also went to the pictures a lot. Mm. Dulce makes fun of me for saying pictures. (laughs) But a lot of people in Ireland call the cinema the pictures. Mm. And so now I'm just refusing to give up on saying the pictures. That's what my grandparents say, and okay. I like it. So it was here at his local picture house <laughs> <laughs> on a dark November night in 1952 when Bender had his next strange encounter. Okay. Sitting there enjoying some sci-fi movies such as Captive Women, Women of the Caves 1,000 Years From Now, or Untamed Women, Savage <laughs> Beauties Who Feared No Animal. And not a Yet cheap, fell before the touch of men. And not a cheap bathrobe in sight. Not a cheap bathrobe in sight. <laughs> These are real, by the way. This was one of my fucking spin-offs when I was researching this the other night. Um, oh, you looked into them? Yeah, they are real movies. Captive no Women, shit. Women of the Caves 1000 Years From Now, or Untamed Women, Savage Beauties Who Feared No Animal Yet Fell Before the Touch of Men. What the these were released in November of 1952, so he could very well have been watching either of these or um, also released in November of 1952 where Bella Lugosi meets a Brooklyn gorilla, Zombies of the Stratosphere, Red Planet Mars, Radar Men from the Moon, or Jungle Jim in the Forbidden Land starring Johnny Weissmuller. So like, were these movies like featured in mainstream yes, movie theaters? These are specific these were specifically sci-fi movies that but were released so no, that's what I looked into no, and yeah they would have been because there was no other way to see a movie at oh, that time no so I, I wasn't sure if there was like because you know how like nowadays we just have like because like there's movies that are playing in that they wouldn't play in like mainstream oh, I see cinemas so are these cinemas like could they have had like specifically only sci-fi um, cinemas where like the art museum they only have artsy <laughs> Maybe, movies. but I think back in the day, you would just pay like whatever, eight cents on a loaf of bread to go and see like two <laughs> movies on a Saturday. And uh, it would have been like back-to-back features. Oh, they were just pumping out crap. You know what I mean? Okay, interesting. Um, But Jungle Jim and the Forbidden Land. Initially, I thought like, why the fuck would you make a movie about a playground in some strange place? But Jungle Jim is actually the character 
Um, um, kind of a play on words there. Totally threw me. <laughs> like Tarzan. Yeah, but okay. I was like, Jungle Gym. Like, what the <laughs> fuck? Funnily enough, though, one of the actresses in Jungle Gym of the Forbidden Land was actually born in Dublin in 1921. Oh. Yeah, Angela Green. Do you know her? I <laughs> went to school with her father. <laughs> Angela Green supposedly had a brief relationship with one John F. Kennedy. No shit. Yeah. I indulged in my little offshoots, like I said, but that I thought that was really fucking interesting. I was like, no way. <laughs> I've heard of him. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, she died at night in at 56, very young. Mm. Yeah. Anyway, Bender's there chillaxing, relaxing to the maxing mm. when he's once again overcome by this intense feeling of dread and trepidation. He's being watched. Out of the corner of his eye, he starts to see a human-like form materialize in a nearby seat. A well-dressed man in a dark suit had just appeared out of nowhere. Something about him just wasn't right, though. Do you know what it was? No. His eyes were lit up like fucking flashlights, <laughs> as if he had light bulbs oh, in wow. his eyes. <laughs> ben is there like something's not right. <laughs> I can't quite put yeah. my finger on this one. <laughs> Again, he. Bender gets that insane headache accompanied with the dizziness and nausea just like before. And he was forced to close his eyes. It actually sounds like a migraine to me. But he was forced to close his eyes and try and regain some composure. And when he opened them again, he was happy to see that the creature was gone. Bender tried to just keep watching the film, but soon the feeling of being watched was back. He slowly turned around now and the glowing eyed thing was sitting behind him, staring right at him. This time Bender bolted he left the movie he's like i i'll catch up with jungle gym next week he left and these episodes continued on and off for the next eight months or so the dizzy spells seeing brief manifestations of dark suited entities at night and during the day as well and closer to what we're used to reading in like stereotypical haunted house stories he would smell sulfur um these odors would permeate his house and be like pinpointed to like specific locations like it's coming from this drawer you know um and these would sometimes last for days sometimes it would just be like as if something walked past him smelled like sulfur uh farts basically and he also had random bursts of poltergeist like activity in his house or in his attic i think specifically in his attic <laughs> so it's farts it's i'm just laughing because um i always think it i just like when you how you pronounce that word Bats. Does it sound like a Boston sailor? Is that way? Maybe. But that's why it makes me laugh whenever I fart and you're like, oh, kitten smells like farts. <laughs> it does. All of this completely random high strangeness seemed to culminate in a horrifying encounter one July night in 1953 when three men showed up at Bender's home. Quote, all of them were dressed in black. They looked like clergymen, but wore hats similar to the Homburg style, which is similar to that hat over there I am spitting the faces were not clearly discernible <laughs> you like that? yeah <laughs> the faces were not clearly discernible for the hats partly hid and shaded them the eyes of all three figures suddenly lit up like flashlight bulbs and all of these were focused on me they seemed to burn into my very soul. 
Now, these things had just appeared in his room. He'd been overwhelmed by one of his dizzy spells, and I think they just, like, materialized. Now, initially, Bender wasn't so forthcoming about this event. He stated that he had been visited by three men late at night who basically flashed their badges and told him to stop all UFO research or else. Hmm. In, in the October release of Space Review, he released a message saying that Space Review and the IFSB <laughs> was coming... And the IFSB was coming to a close. That's how you should do your mind, or your ma- mind magic, magic mind. <laughs> <laughs> your magic, magic mind. mind. Yeah. <laughs> That's how you should say it. <laughs> but they released a message saying that Space Review and the IFSB was coming to an end. He had stumbled across the truth behind all of the UFO activity, but in doing so, had evoked a visit from these mysterious visitors and had been sworn to secrecy but that eventually the truth would come out once this like mysterious project was dealt with. In a quote from that issue of Space Review, Bender says, We would like to print the full story in Space Review, but because of the nature of the information, we are sorry that we have been advised in the negative. We advise those engaged in saucer work to please be very cautious. Saucer work was the delightful term that used to be ufology. That's really cool. I much prefer saucer work. Me too. In 1956, Gray Barker, who was a member of the IFSB, also claimed, or, and who also claimed he had been visited by a very real member of the government inquiring about his saucer work, published They Knew Too Much About Flying Saucers, which had the full account of what actually happened that night, which is roughly what I just told you there. He had said that these mysterious men were government officials, or G-men, as was the lingo of the time but he heavily insinuated that they were from some branch of the fbi Mm. now i think the fbi back then like now it's like oh fuck i'm like gonna get done for tax evasion because of the fbi but back then like the fbi was a scary branch of the of the government yeah because they weren't really regulated yeah 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 this was actually during hoover's time i think yeah they could just do whatever the hell they wanted pretty much um But in 1962, Bender told his true account. He published his own book, Flying Saucers and the Three Men. In this, Bender said that the men in black had communicated telepathically to him. This lengthy message. Hold on. I got to read it out of this book. You have dedicated yourself to the solution of the strange problem of unidentified objects in your atmosphere. Your interest is deep and sincere and you have denoted many hours to it. Devoted many hours to it. And you have devoted many hours to it. We also know that such interest and determination might lead to something that could bring you harm. We feel that you are a very good contact for us on your planet of Earth. You are an average person and we know that what we tell you and show you will not be believed by anyone Will you might tell. <laughs> <laughs> You are not a person of great renown on your planet. Therefore, we have nothing to fear at present. (laughs) Roasted. (laughs) That's what the other three guys are doing in the back. (laughs) (laughs) We have a purpose for being here and we will be here for some time yet. We must not be disturbed in our ultimate goal. As you see us here, we are not in our natural form. We have found it necessary to take on the look of your people while we are here. This is mainly used as a means of returning here without being detected by anyone. (laughs) 
We have made numerous contacts with Earth by means of craft from our own base, and at present we have craft hidden in a remote spot of your planet. We have found it necessary to go to great extremes at times to frighten off your Earth people, and it has resulted in their deaths. We also found it necessary to carry off Earth people to use their bodies to disguise our own. Does that sound familiar? Because it should. The movie Men in Black. That's exactly <laughs> yeah. what happened. Yeah, because they climb into the roach people, climb in. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then bodies. that dude with the... Yeah, anyway. Yeah. We wish to keep in touch with you and tell you many things because one day you will write about this. And we are certain that nobody will believe you. <laughs> <laughs> but you will be in touch. But you will be much wiser than anyone else on your planet. You will know what is out there in space, and you will know what the future holds for your mankind. You will see all three of us again, but we shall not reveal our names, as they would mean nothing to you. Refer to us as numbers one, two, and three. We will answer according to number. We will leave you with one small piece of silver, similar to your coins. It is to be kept in a secret place of your own. We wish to have you come with us at a time to be announced to you soon. Watch that piece of silver just be like a gum wrapper. (laughs) (laughs) But Bender very seriously published that saying that that was the message that had been telepathically given to him, inserted in him. But why did he decide to suddenly, why did he suddenly decide that it was okay to start talking about his experiences though? Because... The aliens had returned to their home planet of Kazik in 1960. How did he know that? Okay. So, he had actually been kidnapped by these three men and brought to the South Pole where the truth had been revealed to him. Okay. Now, this might sound like a bit of a stretch, but there's multiple theories. A bit. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) But there is multiple theories here. The first one, obviously, is that the whole thing is made up. Another theory is that Gray Barker made the whole thing up. Barker was actually known to write fictitious accounts based on real high strangeness events. Mm. Like John Keel wrote The Mothman Prophecies. Gray Barker wrote, um, I think just called like The Silver Bridge, which was like based in truth, but not exactly like the entire truth. And that might have been slander from John Keel because the two of them were kind of rivals at the time. But I don't know. Anyway, another theory, which I don't think is very likely, but I think is pretty funny is that gray barker actually was the man in black that showed up he just dressed up <laughs> and got some buddies to get the shit out of bender but that's funny <laughs> i know <laughs> but other than releasing his book almost a decade after the event and attempting to publish a sequel which apparently was a very detailed account of life on kazik where everyone was naked all the time um bender actually did cease all publication of Space Review, (laughs) which had gotten very successful very quickly. And he also like stopped all UFO research forever. He was completely scared away from all of this stuff. So while it's easy enough to just dismiss the whole thing as like a big spoof, it does feel like there must have been some kernel of truth in there somewhere. Enough to scare him. Enough to scare him. Yeah, because he was like very passionate about this stuff. And obsessed. Yeah. You know? To add to that little nugget of hope was a series of letters sent to Gray Barker from an anonymous government informer known only as Colonel B. In one of his letters, he essentially said that the IFSB had stumbled across some pretty good stuff and some of the articles published in Space Review. 
had caught the attention of the right or wrong people in one of these secret government groups at the time. Um, they're usually called like just uh, black ink projects or something, right? I like know. Stuff that like, the government has to say, we've devoted X amount of money to this, this, this and this, but they don't actually have to say what, what this is. is. Oh. Um, and these things are and were definitely happening at the time. The colonel went on to say that he knew for a fact that agents had been sent out to Bender on multiple occasions to question him and I'm pretty sure these guys would not have been the most friendly. Mm. Jim Keith, author of the case book on the Men in Black, that book that I just read, um, did say that the IFSB were actually quite sophisticated in that through their many detailed accounts that they had received, they could actually track the flight path of certain UFOs mm. down to... And that's why, like, when you hear people, like, actual MUFON people taking their statements of, like, UFO witnesses and stuff, it's excruciatingly boring. It's like, you know, okay, I saw this in the sky for 30 seconds. It was got, had a trajectory, trajectory coming from, like, northeast to southwest. It was shaped like a Dorito. It was shaped like, literally, yeah, it was shaped like a Dorito. <laughs> um, from Skinwalker, right? <laughs> yeah. Um, and, like, they give exact times, locations, all of that. But if they get enough accounts of these people, it ends up with this. Like, okay, now we can track it going across an entire state or country even. You know what I mean? Um, and then they can get speed, blah, blah, blah. <laughs> so it's not totally unrealistic that um wouldn't upset someone on a secret mission. You know what I mean? If they had, like, if they're spying on the fucking population of Omaha for whatever reason, like doing a private research study on how many cattle the farmers have and these farmers are out there and seeing it and then all of a sudden Bender's like, that's funny, it visited X amount of locations, the government's going to step in and be like, all right, all right, calm down there, pal. That's grade A government beef. <laughs> but Colonel B went on to say that the account that Bender published was not as a result of these visits. But Colonel B went on to say that the account that Bender published was not as a direct result of these visits. But he did leave it kind of open-ended saying that maybe Bender was so scared that he just came up with this story as a way out of the UFO world. Or maybe that the story Bender published was a completely different encounter with these weird beings. Basically, Colonel B was just saying, I don't fucking know. Yeah. I'm just saying. <laughs> J. Edgar Hoover himself actually ended up looking into the case at one point, but ultimately denied FBI involvement. Now, that's not to say that there couldn't have been another one of these mysterious government branches. And I actually did a quick Google search just to check when Project MKUltra was carried out, because I just wasn't sure of the exact years. It turns out it was officially active from 1953 to 1973. So who's to say that the dudes who were sent out to intimidate Bender didn't make good use of the government-grade LSD as a tool to really freak out this saucer nerd? Now, that's just my theory. Like that bad guy from Batman, though? Yeah. The Scarecrow? Is that? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Like, and again, that's just me giving my two cents. But I honestly believe something happened to Bender in his Chamber of Horrors. I just don't know that I believe every aspect of the story. Yeah. You know that uh, hallucinogenic thing is very compelling. Yeah, and like that theory. Again, it's that's just me. I'm just this weird saucer freak. I'm just this weird fucking <laughs> saucer boy. Yeah. But Gray Barker actually refused to publish the second book. By the way, mm. because it was so bad, he was just like, 
dude, I can't fucking do it. <laughs> <laughs> that was the uh, the naked people on Kazik. Oh, okay. And then finally, before I move on, there was also a lot of ritual magic going on with the IFSB. I want to say very like Crowleyan style or Crowleyan style. I'm absolutely no expert on this kind of stuff, but a lot of mani- but a lot of manifesting and trying to astral project and attempts to emit telepathic uh, messages to passing ETs, like, and they would arrange this so like all of the members of the IFSB were supposed to like sit down and meditate and try and project these messages into the atmosphere at a certain time on a certain date, so they would all work in it together. It was ritual magic, like. Um, now I am a bit of a nerd stop reading my notes you're throwing me off now I am a bit of a nerd for this kind of stuff the new Kirks I think do a lot of this type of uh, work but I also believe it can lead to a lot of paranoia and drawing conclusions mm. and again I love this kind of stuff I love the idea of manifesting but if you're like start to get this idea like okay a blue car is going to gonna mean something today and then all of a sudden you walk out your front door and there's 800 blue cars you're like oh shit i live in a dealership (laughs) (laughs) no but you know what i mean like it can end up putting certain ideas in your head good and bad it's not always good that's funny um it does add some interesting links though to the more ghostly paranormal activity that took place the sulfuric smell the hearing footsteps etc like did he summon something or maybe even create a thought form, tulpa being of some sort. Yeah. You know, through this magic. Yeah. See, I want to live in a world where that's possible. I think we do. Yeah. But I think it's a it's a very deep subject. I don't know. Like, especially when it comes to like all the mental health issues and stuff. Like this guy clearly was per, uh, displaying certain mm-hmm. symptoms and all. But Bender certainly wasn't the only one to experience the poltergeist activity. And again, this is like my bread and butter stuff. I love that like this is rooted in everything, you know, like almost any high strangers story. There's some weird ghostly activity going on. Take, for example, Skinwalker Ranch. That was just a gallimaufry of paranormal activity. That was a word that I looked up the other day because I was trying to think of a more sophisticated way of saying fuck ton. But Skinwalker Ranch was a real like smorgasbord of high strangeness of any and all types that kind of broke the barrier between ghost stories, UFO encounters, Bigfoot, mm. and just high strangeness in general. That's true. For me personally. Like, yeah. You know what I mean? It, it kind of yeah. like clicked this thing and I was like, Of course oh. they can all be related. Yeah. Yeah. Brad Steiger is listed as a an MIB authority. He was an author and I guess a cultist, for want of a better term. I don't really know um, what the perfect term is for this. But he was on the UFO scene since the 50s and was well in with all these other famous ufologists and investigators of the time. He received a phone call one night from a fellow investigator and in the background, Steiger could hear all sorts of banging, crashing and screaming going on. His friend told him that his fiancée had had a close sighting of a UFO and when they got home, the place was being destroyed by what they could only describe as poltergeist-like activity. Oh, wow. Steiger gave him some advice on how to handle it I guess he just treated it as he would treat any ghost type haunting. And surprisingly enough, it all seemed to calm down. But as soon as he hung up the phone, however, Steiger's own office just started going mental. Uh, Even causing a huge crack to appear in the ceiling. 
Like that's how intense this poltergeist activity was. According to Steiger, he just shouted, cut it the hell out. And that was the end of it. And another night, pictures started flying off the walls and all this crazy crap again. And he simply said, leave me alone. And everything stopped immediately. And I'm pretty sure that that's a story that Jim Harrell loves to tell. Mm. That's how the only time I experienced like weird stuff in my own house, I wasn't as blunt as this, but that's how it stopped for me, mm. was saying, please stop. <laughs> yeah. Know? In 2008, Raven Mindel was in her apartment talking with her husband when he suddenly felt a random isolated rush of wind go past him, which he described as feeling like someone walking past him briskly. Weird, but they just got on with it anyway. A week later, Raven was outside playing frisbee when she witnessed two men dressed all in black coming out of the vacant apartment across from her own. One looked to be in his late 20s to early 30s, while the other was around 20 years older. They had black briefcases and proceeded to walk away and get into a black Lincoln before driving away quickly. The family were plagued with paranormal activity almost immediately and over the next few weeks the telephone would ring but of course there would be no one on the other line. Her husband Adam heard voices whispering throughout the apartment on multiple occasions and they found strange handprints on the bathroom mirror and their daughter ended up with bruises on her arm that they said looked exactly like this huge handprint that had been on the bathroom mirror. Terrifying. Raven kept a journal where she documented all of these experiences because she was pretty invested in her own UFO research at the time. So she, this kind of stuff happens to people who get involved in this kind of stuff, basically. So she was already intelligent enough no, intelligence not the right word she was already savvy enough to start a journal as soon as she felt something was not right and she was she became convinced that these were intentional warning signs to get her to stop specifically looking into ufo things most terrifying of all though in my opinion was while she was out walking her dog one day a very nice black car appeared to be following her naturally this freaked her out but then they started stopping the car right beside her so I think she would walk a little bit. Mm -hmm. They would pull up, stop, look at her. She would walk on. And this kind of went on. But when the younger man took off his seatbelt and looked like he was about to get out, Raven quickly pulled out her phone and started walking away towards some nearby building. And when she looked back, they were just gone. Like car, the two men, everything had just vanished. Her belief that the paranormal activity was linked to these two weirdos was only strengthened when her and her family moved out of that apartment. And only two days after moving into a new house, they saw, quote, a strange ball of light come down right over them in the sky while they were outside. They felt it was a definite sign that someone or something was just letting them know that they were still being monitored. Mm. Again, I feel like we read this in Skinwalker Ranch. Yeah. She stopped all of her UFO research and the strangeness died down. But that intense feeling seems to be a very common occurrence in a lot of accounts. Also, like just the feeling of dread at being physically near or seeing a man a man in black or a men in black it's really hard to say or a black eyed kid or a black eyed kid a lot of that is kind of linked yeah mm. and i think this leans into the telepathy thing mm. but we'll get back to that next week with a lot more intense accounts and also very funny stuff like as well that I, i've been i really enjoyed this one um i like the era that it's in mm -hmm. like just the whole 1950s and 
There's Face flying review. saucers. Yeah, you know what I mean? <laughs> Everything sounds like this. <laughs> um, but yeah, so hopefully everybody enjoyed. If this video doesn't take too long to edit, which I don't think it should, mm. um, we'll continue doing it like this for a little while. I am going to try and get back into weekly episodes like every day every this day or whatever um but just bear with me while i try and figure that out and yeah thanks everybody for sticking with us through the break and uh thanks for all the lovely messages that we've been getting uh we got one the other day from somebody just saying i just listened to all your stuff and here's a story we have a few listener stories actually in the in the catalog now so we'll definitely get the titillating tales out soon and uh that's it right yeah that's good all right. Bye. Bye. Oh, it's the fucking ice cream man. The cunt. The ice cream man. The bane of my existence. Stop reading my notes. Oh. <laughs> you look at the camera. That's true. <laughs> Scooch over. Scooch closer. Thank you, lovely assistant. The background. <laughs> I'm trying to get through this. I'm telling you the story. Stop trying to read it.